So I have a riddle for us to start with. Life is somewhat of a riddle, somewhat of a mystery. Uh, some of the topics we'll be touching on this afternoon really put us into the riddle of God's mystery. Uh, I don't have great answers. I have learned the value of some really good questions and learning how to ask those questions. There are some answers along the way, too. Uh, the riddle. There was a traveler walking down the road on a journey and came to a fork in the road. And in the fork of the road sat another person whom the traveler knew was from that general area. One road, it was told, would lead to True Town, where everyone always tells the truth. The other road, no signage here, led to False Town, where everyone in False Town always told a lie. The traveler was informed that this one person sitting in the fork of the road was from that general area. And the traveler was allowed one and only one question. Don't say it if you have it already figured out. I just want you to keep it in your, in your head. Am I clarified on the riddle? Traveler, fork in the road. One road leads true town, other false town. Don't know which is which. There's a wise person sitting in the fork of the road. From that general area, the traveler is allowed one question. Good. Hold, hold your thoughts. Uh, I speak today from authority. First of all, the authority of Jesus Christ as Lord, who is the creator of all things and in whom is all truth. Colossians chapter 1. Crucified, buried, risen, and reigning. That's the authority upon which I stand. I'm, I'm indebted to Pepperdine. I'm a, I'm a Pepperdine grad and appreciative of that deeply. A cheerleader. Yes, too. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that uh, we are imago Dei, made in the image of God, as is everyone around us. I also believe that Jesus is so much the truth that there is truth around the world in places that I had not thought truth might be found. I believe there is truth in other religious practices, in other religious belief systems, that there is truth throughout this world that we live in. And I think all of that truth has come from and goes back to and is authoritatively proclaimed by Jesus Christ, the perfect representative of God, God's self in this world. 
who became flesh. And chaplaincy deals a lot with flesh and people in their embodiment. And so we look around this room, whether it's Rita from Kansas or Mary or Jill from New York or Anne or Zoe or Austin, we all deal with life sometimes when it's not in control. And that's pretty much chaplaincy is what do we do when life spins out of control? Or when we feel lost? I was lost once, more than once, but my story is of uh, deer hunting in Colorado mountains. Down south, it was September, we were black powder. So we got to go in the early part of the season the, the aspens were still so beautiful. I was with five other guys from our church, the East Side Church of Christ in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And we, in the afternoon, set out and we said, well, we'll all spread and we'll go our way. And so I had my little black powder rifle. And by the way, I've gone for many walks in the woods with a rifle and never got a deer. <laughs> but on this day, I was going to get me. I was going to get my, my deer. We wa I walked, because we all took our separate ways. I walked, and I walked some more. And I walked some more, and then I realized it was about time for us to join back up together. I realized the sun was getting closer to setting than it had been at noontime. And my time... You know, it was important, and so I, I knew if I made it over to that ridge, I would be on my way to joining back up with my buddies. I got to the top of that ridge, and oh, it's the wrong ridge. It's, it's that next one. And I worked hard, and I began to perspire, and it was a September day, and I got to that next ridge. And I knew... I was lost. And I started to mentally prepare myself to spend the night alone in the woods with my little single shot black powder rifle. And I began to panic. And I said, I'm going to walk a little bit downhill, down this slope, because I was told if you keep walking downhill, that's where the riverbeds run, and you hopefully find a riverbed, follow it out. I walked and I walked, and suddenly, I almost missed it, I came across a very faint deer trail. I mean, you could hardly make it out. But I was smart enough to know that these deer were smarter than me that they didn't get lost in the woods, and I was. And I followed that trail. And about 45 minutes later, it put me off onto a hiker trail. Continued to follow that downhill, and it led me to a forest service road, dirt road. And I hunkered down for the evening. 
It was about another 45 minutes, and I could see the headlights of the pickup truck. Mike Bragg, Jack Callen, Bob Carter, Larry Williams, my buddies, were coming for me. A lot of people that we encounter and specifically within the clinical ministry of what we would call spiritual care or chaplaincy, a hospital or, or a congregation-based ministry to visit those who are sick, who uh, could be a nursing facility where they are in need, could be kids in a, a traumatic condition, those who feel they're lost and their life is out of control and they don't know where or what's going to go next. And in chaplaincy, in spiritual care, I think we're one set of people that can be guides that come alongside them and say, look, there's a deer trail. Let's keep on the journey and not be in total despair and chaos. She was an elderly woman, and by the way, all the names I use in my examples are pseudonyms to uh, protect their confidentiality. She was in the waiting room of the emergency department. It was 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning. We'll call her Doris. Doris was with her daughter-in-law. They were sitting there because Doris's husband had been brought in with a cerebral uh, vascular accident, a brain bleed, stroke, and was being treated back in the emergency department area, and she was sitting, and you can imagine what she was doing, fidgeting, uh, trying to fumble through her purse to find the, the prescription list, to find all this information that the emergency department wanted. And I went out there, and I introduced myself. I said, hi, I'm Craig. I'm the chaplain on duty tonight. And your name is? And I sat down at her level, eye to eye. And she said, my name's Doris. And she was shaking. And I looked to the daughter-in-law and introduced myself to her. And I said, tell me about your husband to try to get her to focus on something just besides the general anxiety that she was going through. So she mentioned briefly her husband's name. And then I went to one of the hard questions, which is one of the things that we learn to help people look, work through the hard questions instead of what people would say, beating around the bush or dancing the dance. And, and some of that is obviously needed as we build rapport with someone and, and establish trust. And you can apply what I'm saying to people-to-people to people work wherever you're at. And I reached out and I gently put my hand on top of Doris's hand in a way that was very appropriate. What I wanted to touch. I said, Doris, are you afraid? 
the bill is going to die. What did Doris do? It was okay. Instead of trying to hold in all of that energy and control, she knew she was with safe people, that she could be out of control a little bit. Asking the hard questions at the right time. Um, I am no authority in the area of chaplaincy. I'm a relative newbie. If you want to talk to someone, talk to Virgil Fry. Right here, Virgil, raise your hand. Because people need to know that you're, you are a great resource. Okay. Lifeline Ministry out of Houston. Church of the Christ and Spiritual Care Chaplaincy. Been doing this ministry for Too long. countless number of years. Um, I'm two years out of my residency, uh, which I did at St. Luke's uh, Regional Medical Center in Boise, Idaho. And now I'm a full-time uh, chaplain with Providence St. Joseph Hospitals in Portland, Oregon, where I work with two elderly population day clinics uh, in long-term care, palliative care, end-of-life care um, there in, in the Portland area. I get to work with the, our participants. We call them not patients because it's not a bedside uh, work necessarily, but we go out to their nursing homes as well, visit them there, and their adult children. We get to interact with their families, which is a powerful, you know, triangular dynamic. So I'm not an expert in this. I'm a newbie, but I will speak also from the authority of my training. I believe in my training, in what happened to me in being trained in CPE. And that's one gift I want you to take back to your congregations. CPE. I didn't know about CPE, even as a, a young minister in training. I wish I had. It wasn't in our tradition, in our tribe of Churches of Christ, it just wasn't promoted, at least in this section of the country. Clinical pastoral education. And you can Google on CPE. Its main offices are out of Decatur, Georgia. And that's the national certifying body. And I would hope, I'll, we'll get to that part in just a little bit, as far as how congregations can take some of this ministry. Today is a Holocaust Remembrance Day, May 2nd. Uh, it comes out of the 1943 uprising in Warsaw, Poland, uh, when the, the, there was a Jewish uprising against uh, Hitler's uh, Nazi party, and there was, they were obviously uh, ravaged by Hitler's forces, and then they selected this date. It was in April of 43, so, but May 2nd was chosen every year as the Holocaust day. The word uh, Holocaust means holos, meaning the whole thing, and cost, like caustic, if you have a caustic burn, uh, it means burning. So the whole burning. So the Jews talk about the Holocaust. Um, 
we try to give you the, the spirit of what spiritual care is to be directed at. This is an ex extract from the diary of Lieutenant Colonel Willett Gonan, a British officer that was with the forces that first came to Bergen-Belsen POW camp as that was being liberated in 1945. He led his soldiers into this camp. The, the Germans had long left it a few days earlier. They came into Bergen-Belsen, which is one of the, the, the largest POW camps. But I want to give us a taste of where chaplaincy and spiritual care is directed. He writes, I can give no adequate description of the horror camp in which my men and myself were to spend the next month of our lives. It was just a barren wilderness, as bare as a chicken run. Corpses lay everywhere, some in huge piles. Sometimes they, they lay singly or in pairs where they had fallen. It took a little time to get used to seeing men, women, and children collapse as you walked by them and to restrain oneself from going to their assistance. One had to get used early to the idea that the individual just did not count. One knew that 500 a day were dying and that 500 a day were gonna go on dying for weeks before anything we could do would have the slightest effect. It was, however, medically, there was just, they were beyond being revivable, so many of them. One knew that uh, it was, however, not easy to watch a child choking to death from diphtheria when you knew a tracheotomy and nursing could save it. They didn't have those resources at that time. One saw women drowning in their own vomit because they were too weak to turn over and men eating worms as they clutched a half loaf of bread purely because they had had to eat worms to live and now could scarcely tell the difference. And I don't apologize for the, for the frankness of this description. Piles of corpses, naked and obscene, with a woman too weak to stand, propping herself against them as she cooked the food we had given her over an open fire. Men and women crouching down just anywhere in the open, relieving themselves of the dysentery which was scouring their bowels. A woman standing stark naked, washing herself with some a bar of soap that had been given to her by the soldiers in water from a tank in which the remains of a child floated. Walking into the ministry of chaplaincy and spiritual care takes us into harsh, messy situations that, that scrambles our mind to figure out why. Why does this happen to this person, to this family? Why and why and why and why? Just as much as we say, why such horror. It was shortly after the British, cross, uh, the British Red Cross arrived that though it may have no connection, a very large quantity of lipstick <laughs> arrived. 
This was not at all what we men wanted. We were screaming for hundreds and thousands of other things that I don't know who asked for lipstick. I wish so much that I could discover who did it. It was the action of genius. Sheer, unadulterated brilliance. I believe nothing did more for those internees than the lipstick. <sighs> Women lay in bed with no sheets, no nighty, but with scarlet red lips. You saw them wandering about with nothing but a blanket over their shoulders, but with scarlet red lips. I saw a woman dead on the post-mortem table and clutched in her hand was a piece of lipstick. At last, someone had done something to make them individuals again. To make them individuals once more. They were not just a number that had been tattooed on their arm. At last, they could take an interest in who they were. The lipstick started to give them back their humanity. Chaplaincy has been a wonderful world for me to sort of regain my own identity because I, I, have, I have issues. And I suspect some of you do as well, but <laughs> that's right now not my business. My business is to know me and then to begin one by one to approach someone and help them realize their humanity. So it's the ministry of lipstick, if you will. Who can take away the suffering but only that person who has known suffering? Uh, and that humbles me because I used to love to answer questions and have the answers and be a fixer. And I don't fix. I don't fix. I'm so thankful for doctors and nurses and the medical team that I work with. Uh, every day I meet with uh, an IDT team, an interdisciplinary team of 12, 13 professionals, social workers and physical <coughs> therapists and occupational therapists and respiratory therapists and uh, doctors. Oh, they're wonderful people. And they are good at fixing and they are trained to fix. In chaplaincy, spiritual care, we don't fix. We come alongside people and allow them to share their struggles as we understand our struggles. We have to understand our own feelings. Projection is a real issue in chaplaincy that the, the things I, in, in short, the things that I don't like about myself, I will tend to ignore and deny and instead, I'll project them onto others. If I see someone that's, well, I don't, 
want to share my issues with you too. <laughs> if I see someone who's too caught up in themselves, selfish, prideful, controlling, I love to analyze them and discount them in my judgmentalism. But truth be told, those are struggles that Craig deals with. We, uh, one of the tools, and, and we won't talk about it in great, the, the, what, what we know is the Johari window, and you can, uh, you can do research, in other words, you can Google on Johari window. There's a simple matrix. There's a one quadrant is the self that you know and the self that others know. And that, for me, as a minister in a congregation, that was my persona. That was my image. I have to make sure that I suck my stomach in so I look flat-bellied. I have to make sure I'm, that I look good to you. Then there's the, well, this will be the unknown of the others. For others, are un, it's unknown. And this is the unknown of self. So the great theological question that I finally asked in the work of spiritual care, and I think it's the work of the church, the, fellow, the faith of believers, is to do our work that we do in essence in CPE, and that is to go down into the basement of our souls and unpack our own boxes. Before I can begin to assist someone who's lost in the woods and looking for that deer trail to unpack their boxes. For me, well, we deal with six primary emotions in, in my frame of training. Mad, sad, glad, and afraid. Mad, anger, sad, my sadness, my despair. Mad, sad, glad, my joyfulness. Celebration, I think that's why worship is so, oh, so precious. Mad, sad, glad, and afraid, my fears. And then for me is a deep hurt, deep hurt, uh, trauma. Jill, you were talking about the kids, you, deep hurt. And then the, the sixth primal, primary emotion that I deal with from my training is uh, shame and guilt, sort of a, a mix. And so we're, we help people un load their boxes, unpack their boxes. And we can't, I can't do that if I'm not willing and able and have some authority in having done some of that work myself. So the unknown self becomes, I want to make sure I get my, yeah. Why does Tiger Woods, this is my great theological question, why does Tiger Woods have a swing coach? Here's Tiger Woods, what a great comeback, by a great comeback, great redemption story 
uh, at some level. Why did Tiger Woods, why would he need a swing coach? He's the greatest golfer in the world. Why does he hire a golf swing coach? If, if that swing coach was such a great golfer, the swing coach would be out winning the Masters tournament. Because Tiger Woods is humble enough to know that he might have he might have a blind spot. Something in his swing that he's not seen. And so, to go from knowing yourself, well, I know who Craig is, and I also know I don't want them to know all that much about me, right? But to go from here to there, you have to ask. You have to be in a relationship of people that you trust and say, I need to know, you know, help me. What do you see in me that I can be working on? Certainly ask God to be. And if we go down to this, where what others don't know, this is the secret. Of course, we know whereas sick as our secrets. Um, a lot of those come out of the, well, they all come out of those six primary emotions that we deal with. Mad, sad, glad, and frad, deep hurt, shame, and guilt. Trauma. We Oftentimes, that's why Brene Brown is so popular, because she deals with the shame of, you know, thinking I'm not enough. And so we have to put on that good image, that persona, but we keep it a, a secret. So we don't ask in this, we... We have to tell. This takes us telling others in, in safe ways who we are. And then the final quadrant, I'll do a different color for that because this, this gets to be a little tricky. This is really the, what I'm going to call the, the unconscious. Okay that neither others nor even us know. And this takes work. Oftentimes it needs uh, professional referrals. And that's one thing in chaplaincy that we're, I hope, I know I'm good at because I realize I don't know this and I refer out addiction, mental health issues, although many of them can be comforted and supported by spiritual care, some of them need deep professional help. Um, I was so delighted when I went to therapy. And I, it was, it was a God sent delivery for me to begin to open up that door deep into the basement of my soul and to unpack those boxes. And my wife is here this morning, this afternoon. Uh, 
Mara, as is my precious daughter, Joy. And, uh, you know, they will, they will remember the night at home or in the kitchen when I told them some of my deep, my deep boxes that were being opened. Uh, some of it had to do with deep shame, deep guilt. Uh, human sexuality issues. And that's not what this class is about, but I want to let you know that that's, that's part of me and part of my boxes that have been in the process of being unpacked. And I'm so glad. And I'm also so sad and mad about all that too. Mad as hell. Because that's hellish. That is hellish to live. Pressed down by those types of secrets or those types of issues that are they're so treacherous and, and deceptive that I'm not even aware of them at time, or other people, or even my blind spots. So we're constantly working in these areas. So projection, when you take your feelings. And so uh, I was at St. Luke's uh, working up in the medical ICU unit. It was the evening. And we had a call that we were having a, a life flight person come in from out of, uh, just across, from Oregon, crossing the Idaho border, coming to Boise. And so I ran up to the medical ICU. It was a female, uh, another bleeding in the brain, 23 years old. So you know how you project, or you also do the same of transference and counter-transference where you begin to, other people play out different roles in your life because spiritual care and, and life, it is about me, but it's not about me. And so we live in that tension. So it's okay to think this is about me. It is, but it's not all about you. It certainly is about you because you, you've got a lot of work to do here on self, right? But we also want to be there for others to help them find their deer trail out of the woods. 23 years old, she was deemed irreversible. They would, they would keep her connected to the technology long enough for family to come in over the next day or two. And I walked into that darkened, ICU room for the first time. Husband was seated at the head of the bed and had his arm around her and head bowed, quiet, not sobbing. Mom was pacing up and down the side of the bed. I drew the curtain back, I stepped in, and I, I came in quietly because I need to respect the sacredness of that space. So I learned, you know, we, we need to be careful. I need to be careful to invade people's space, thinking somehow I bring this. I do, some, I do bring some great authority, pastoral authority. I believe in my training. I believe my calling from God, 
who Jesus Christ is? Yes! But I just entered. I cry easily. That's me. It's okay. Uh, I introduce myself because I don't keep them in mystery very long. I don't want to confuse them. I'm Craig. I am the chaplain on this unit. She walked over to me. She said, if this is what your God does, your God can go to hell. And she turned and went back just to pace Well, what should we do? What should a chaplain say? Oh, by the way, the answer to that question is most of the time say nothing. I think maybe that's why I do well in chaplaincy because you just can, you don't have to say it, no. <laughs> I thought, well, I need to uh, I need to bring up an apologetical defense of the Christian faith with a teleology and the ontology and the all those ologies and I'll just. What did she need? What did she need? Not what I needed. I didn't need to defend my faith. Does God need to have a rational response to a world that says, why? Yes, yes, yes. But not there in that moment, being with the individual. Remember lipstick, individuals. What did she need? That's the recorder. What did she need? What would you need? I don't have the answers here. (laughs) I have some suggestions. Do you have a suggestion what she might need? Okay, take a risk. Step out a little bit here into that adventure of engaging. I think she just needed to be respected as mom. you do? What would you do? By the way, Joy, two and a half years ago, or three years ago, was 22. So I walk into the room, I see a 23-year-old female, long hair. I'm projecting this transference as well. I'm seeing my daughter. I'd curse God too, most likely, maybe. My words to her after a minute or two or three, I didn't try to respond or defend. I just said her name, I'll pick a name, Elaine. Elaine, I have no idea what you're going through. I really didn't. 
And I could have said, I could have said, and, and theologically, I think this is very powerful. I believe God was right there. That God suffers in God's creation when bad things happen in God's creation. And God weeps as he did it with Jesus at the cross is the ultimate picture. I think God weeps. Did God cause that to happen? No. We live in a broken world. I have a list of books I'll give to you, uh, 12 worthy books. One of them is by Horace O. Duke called Where is God When Bad Things Happen? One of the best books I've ever read. Where is God when bad things happen? God is right there. You're not in the woods alone. God led me to so many deer paths, metaphorically speaking. I said, I, I, said, I don't know what you're thinking or feeling. I can't imagine. And I didn't say a phrase that many people say, and you can use this phrase, but I've learned not to use this phrase. I don't say, I'm sorry. And I love to have controversial discussions on this. Uh, we see on all the police shows the phrase, uh, sorry for your loss. Hmm. Okay. They have a different job to do. I just, they're investigators. That's also a tough call when you're on the scene of a SIDS death. And you're there to provide comfort and support for mom and dad. And the law enforcement, they have a very important job to investigate. And so they start asking penetrating questions. Very difficult situation to be in. I don't say I'm sorry because I use the word I. That's, that's dangerously too much focus on me. Rather than for me, I'm much better at this work of supporting and caring when I really think about so today, I asked Mary, I think two or three times, Mary, I asked you how to spell it, so I could really focus on Mary. Because too often when I introduce myself, my thoughts are, oh, I wonder if I, I, wonder if I look okay, I wonder what she thinks about me, you know. Because you know, one of my boxes is deep codependency and insecurities and shame and guilt. So what does Mary think about me? Well, I'm 68 years old now, and I'm so glad to feel so much more comfortable in my own skin. I do care what you think about me, but a part of me also really doesn't care either. Uh, is that, does that work for you? I, I do care. But I need to be a person of integrity between God and myself. And with the people are so precious to me. So I don't say I'm sorry. I would say this must be so hard for you. This must be unbelievably painful. So I'm acknowledging her. My focus is directed towards her. I'm just very careful not to bring it back to me. <clears throat> Three, four minutes later, mom came back to me. She was walking up and down. I just stood there. I went over to just check with Dad to see if he was okay. Because often people in that kind of shock, you know, they're not thinking well. 
Their brains are on reptilian brain. They're in survival mode, and sometimes you have to literally think for them to remind them to get a glass of water, to stay hydrated, because they're not thinking. They're feeling. But it was three or four minutes later, Mom came over to me, and she said, Chaplain, my daughter was a Christian, and she would want a prayer said. we prayed what kind of a prayer would you pray I don't know oh God affirming thank you for the love that this family is showing in their tears thank you for the life that I'll give a name to this patient Virginia lived thank you for her precious body that gave birth to I think they had two children And oh God, just be with this family, hour by hour. Because the, the worst thing is to be alone. And may we, you know, draw upside them so they'll know they're not alone. It was a, I, I honestly cannot remember if it was a five-month-old boy or a five-year-old boy. I, I just can't. Uh, he was in the children's hospital there at um, uh, Randall Children's Hospital and I'm not giving away uh, protected health information here, other than say there's a patient at such and such hospital. And I was called one morning, it was during my one unit of uh, uh, CPE that I did there before I went to Boise for my year-long residency. And I was called up and the, the medical team had determined that this, uh, this patient was no longer viable for life, that there was nothing they could do. And they were getting ready to disconnect uh, external life support. Mom was there. Whether she was of faith, uh, religiously or not, is really not important at this point, folks. And one of the questions we do ask, though, there's a very important question that can be very helpful to help clarify, is, is there a particular religious tradition or spiritual practice that's important to you at this time in your life. You're not saying, do you go to church? You're respecting the spirituality concept of our postmodern, post-Christian age, and we're called to be where the people are at. Is there a religious tradition or spiritual practices that are important to you at this time in your life? I've had a handful of people, a hand, three or four, say, blankety blank, no. I have, you know, and I don't want you talking about religion. I have three or four people, maybe at the most. I have a lot of people who say, well, we're not particularly religious. And my response often is, remember, what are you supposed to say if you don't know what to say? A lot of times I'll, if, if they really want to have some conversation, I'll say, uh, you know, religion is really a tricky business, isn't it? It can be really slippery. And if they want to take it even further, I'll even say, you know, Jesus really wasn't that much into religion. Although he knew a lot about it. He fully understood his Judaism. I mean, you know, I don't believe Jesus came to give us a new religion. I think he came to give us life. 
and he got it right. So, the, the team, the medical team was disconnecting the patient, the mother and I, and uh, she had two little kids in tow, were out in the hallway. Her husband was driving in, and she sat in a chair. I stood next to her, hand appropriately on her shoulder. You have to be real careful, but you know, oftentimes I'll say, this is Rita. This really is Rita. I'll say, Rita's okay. I put my hand here, because I want you to know you're not alone. And then she looked at me, she said, Chaplain, what are we going to do? What would you say? Austin, any ideas? What would you say? Her five, I can't, I honestly cannot, it was five months or five year old? Five months. Okay. What are we going to do? Chaplain. Well, let's have Bible study. <laughs> I love Bible study. I can't live life without Knowing I'm so indebted, that's it's not an option. But we didn't do Bible study then. My answer was, Mom, I think we're just going to cry right now. And we cry. That's where my crying comes in handy. I'm good with that. So, when we don't know the answers... We can keep quiet, or we can really turn our focus onto that person. Wouldn't that be wonderful if the world knew there were people that cared enough to really focus on them? Painted with lipstick. God has called, this is my theory of spiritual care. We were trained to come up with a two-sentence theory of spiritual care. God has called me to connect with all persons in their context by a calm, non-anxious, non-judgmental spirit. In holding their stories and empowering use of all their available emotional and spiritual resources, they can begin to heal and develop the ability to cope. That's my theory of spiritual care. God is calling me. So the word call is real important. Call on my heart, your heart. God is calling me to connect. And, and I don't mean to be trite with that word connect. That's truly connect in their context. So that means I learn to connect with the nurses, with the janitor, with the heart surgeon. And for a person who is codependent and insecure and very dismissive to those in authority, it's a tough hierarchical world in that hospital. Those doctors, they command and deserve a lot of respect and power. Sometimes they can really distance themselves from other people, but for me to go up to a doctor, you know, was a big, big step. But I realized I was called by God to connect with all persons in their context. What if I don't speak their language? It was at St. Luke's. It was up in the pediatric ICU unit. A three-year-old boy and his 10-year-old sister had been involved in a horrendous uh, motor vehicle crash. Uh, the kids were not seat belted in. One of the siblings died on scene. One sibling survived. 
with minor injuries and this little three-year-old boy and his 10-year-old sister were brought to the um, pediatric ICU. And within just a couple of hours, I remember Dr. Jutsi was there. What a, this brain surgeon who's an Episcopal deacon. <laughs> he would come up to me. He was a chairman of the board at that, chairman of the staff or so that year that I was there at St. Luke's. And he comes up to us chaplains and he says, I just want you to know you do the important work. This is Dr. Jutsi saying this to me. Anyway, after uh, Dr. Jutsi and his team had done an assessment of the patients, they were both declared irreversible. And they were being kept alive because they were prime donor, donation candidates. That's the most amazing thing of redemptive life out of death. And this, uh, this Hispanic, primarily Spanish-speaking family gathered in the waiting room, and it was 30 to 35 people. There were some of the teenagers who were bilingual. I was so thankful for them. Because the best phrase I know in Spanish is, uh, lo siento no hablo bien español, which means, I'm sorry, I don't speak Spanish well. I know that statement. And I know how to say, como se dice? And then say, como se dice chair? <laughs> and I crippled my way through that way. But anyway, I was called up to be with this family. And I said, I don't, myself, I don't want to go into that. It's embarrassing. I don't have any power. I don't have any authority because they'll think I don't know very much. What do I do? And then I realized, oh, this is not about you, Craig. It's about being with them. I went in. I sat down at a table with some, some of the elder-looking members of that family with a cup of coffee and had one of the most fantastic 45 minutes of visit I have ever experienced in my life. We laughed. We cried. Como se dice? Lo siento no hablo bien español. Oh, it's okay. It's okay. And I had one of the teenagers come over if I wanted to translate something more at depth. And we just cried together and we laughed together and we talked about the kids. It was an amazing process that out of death, out of tragedy, we learned this marvelous mystery of God comes hope in life. That's one of the big reasons that we do the work that we all want to do more of, coming alongside those that are lost in the woods looking for a deer trail. What was wonderful about that, ritual is very important. Ritual is very important. And I, as a young minister, you know, rebel, I thought, oh, ritual, that's just for old traditional churches. Ritual is life-giving. We do comfort quilts, or call them passage quilts, where we read a blessing over the body of the person who is either actively dying or has died. Hopefully we do it before so that they can be in on some of that blessing, but we'll gather the family around at bedside. The word clinic is out of the Latin for bed, by the way. To be along the bed is the Latin word where we get clinic. Ira Bayok is a wonderful, he's also on, he's also on the list that I'm going to pass out. Yeah. In fact, I'll give this list, this 
to my wife, she'll, she'll remind us. Uh, we have till 4.30, right? So 25 after. Ira Bayok. Uh, in the emergency department at St. Luke's, we had a family come in, cardiac arrest, uh, a gentleman who had uh, cardiac arrest out in his backyard, I believe it was. He was brought in. There was no way to revive, survive this gentleman. And as the family gathered, we called family in from the waiting room to come back into the emergency department. And the head charge nurse, she wanted to clear the room quickly. But we, we insisted. We said, this family needs this time. Ira Bayok, the four things that matter most, he tells us that this can be a powerful time of reconciliation, even in the midst of death itself. And even more powerful, I believe, when death is approaching and we still have time. He talks about the four things that you ought to be able to say as a family unit. And you know, boy, congregations ought to do this. I'm pretty smart. I'm starting to connect the dots here, huh? We would gather the family on each side of the... The, the patient was appropriately covered with a blanket up to the head and the head had been properly prepared so it wouldn't be too grotesque but those that wanted to come in we encouraged them. they put their hands on the loved one and I stepped forward and set the set the example that it's okay to touch some people don't want to and that's okay too but I said Ira Biox four things were please forgive me for and you fill in the blank Secondly is, I forgive you for filling the blank. The third thing is to say thank you for, and go around. Yeah, it, it can be a powerful time of reconciliation. And then the fourth one is, I love you for, or because I saw these things in you for what you did, yada, yada, yada. I forgive you. Please forgive me. Thank you. I love you. And then fifthly, you can finally say goodbye. So we had them come in. And that's, that's the messy, hard work of spiritual care. I hope, my hope for congregations is that you will... Take back to your congregations, or you'll suggest, you know, there's this thing called CPE, Clinical Pastoral Education, that some of your staff might be interested in. You do need to have a master's level of education in a theology, counseling, philosophy, and you can, all that information is available online through CPE. You'll also see it as ACPE, Association for Clinical Pastoral Education. They're one and the same. And to say you could become powerful in your ministry, and then you could come back to our congregation, and you could share with us you know, over a long period of time and help coordinate and train a hospital ministry. To teach us how to step into the reality of life and to meet people where they're at, and to be good listeners. I think that's probably as good a lesson as I've learned in this, is the ability to listen. 
we talk about 10 different ways of listening. Uh, you, as you listen actively with a person, one, one way can be literal repetition. Pers um, I'll, I'll just, Zoe, can I use you as an example here? Hi, Zoe, where are you from? Seattle, Washington. So I literally repeated two words that Zoe shared with me. You can do reflective uh, reflection on, on an emotional intent that you see. I might say, Zoe, I noticed when we were talking about that five-month-old that you closed your eyes. I'm just reflecting a little bit on what I think maybe I saw in her. Now, let's go a little bit deeper, and that would be pretty quick to go that deep. But this is just samples of how we learn to, to listen. Paraphrase. So you live in the Puget Sound area. I paraphrase. Uh, summary would be, so what, what I think I hear you saying oh, this is part of active listening. Being a listener. I think the world, I know the world is hungry to have people listen to their story. Hmm. Period. Because I believe I'm important. Or if I found I'm if I don't think I'm important, but I really found someone who thought my story was important, maybe I would share. My name's Craig Beer. Carice. Carice. Where are you from? Nashville. Nashville. What's Nashville like today? <laughs> I see your smile. What's your smile say? Boom! We've launched into kids. Oh, you get someone talking about their kids. I used to think pets were. Pfft. Yeah. Five o'clock in the morning, call at Emmanuel lady who had been having suicidal ideation. She was being discharged and she was threatening. So they weren't ready to discharge her, they weren't sure. Got into a conversation, her life had collapsed in on her. Her husband left her, financial distress, medical issues, <coughs> getting kicked out of her apartment. Uh, the list was long. I said, uh, we'll call her, who should we call her today? Doris. Doris, what, uh, what are you going to do when you get discharged, when they're ready to discharge you? And we talked ultimately that she may not get discharged until we assessed her. What are you going to do when you get discharged? She said, well, I'm going to go pick up my two dogs. Bingo! I'm going to go pick up my two dogs. What did I say? We found what was important for her. She was not religious. She was not uh, practicing any spirituality particular. But she had a deep reverence for those dogs. Those were her sacred space. For a lot of men, I found out in Idaho, I don't know, in my residency there, they said, I'm not religious. We don't go to church. But when I go hunting, and I'm out in the woods, and I go, oh, oh, this is creation story stuff, isn't it? God's creation declares that's worship for that guy.
And so we, we meet people where they're at and go with it from there. I hope that in your congregations, you'll say there's something to this CPE. Uh, there's volunteer hospital opportunities, regardless of your formal education. And uh, chaplains, assistants are looking for responsible, mature people that are willing to go through a minimum of, of training in many hospitals. Uh, and you'll learn from some chaplains whether you make it a career. I would say to our women who in our tradition are still fighting such an upward battle for work in ministry, that CPE offers a lifetime career opportunity in some of the most meaningful ministry. So I would encourage, uh, I need to, we need to keep making progress in understanding women's gender roles and egalitarian ministry, but right now we know women are, uh, I work with uh, half the chaplains at Providence, uh, you know, 50-50 male, female. Wonderful opportunities. The hard questions, learning to listen. Learning to face death, uh, to ask the hard questions in a relationship of trust and support, to be able to ask the person, what does a good death look like for you? What does a good death? Well, I'm not, I don't want to talk about that. What do you say? Obviously, you don't want to just to lead up to it when it's appropriate to ask, what does a good death look like for you, Bob, Susan? And they say, I'm not ready to talk about that right now. What would be your response? Thank you, Bob, for letting me know that this is just not the right time but I appreciate your honesty. That means a lot to me. And would it be okay if sometime later in the future I asked you that question again? And typically, the patient will say, sure. But they know that you're willing, you're willing to swim in the deep end of the pool. You've been in the forest, you've been lost, and you know what it's like to panic in that, uh, in that deep lostness of thinking about death. Learning to respect the rights of those who mourn. Um, Mara, why don't you just go ahead and walk around and I think I made 20 copies, so if you're a, a couple, it's what I call 12 worthy books. Uh, that would be worth your time, the books that have uh, encouraged me to look at life in a whole new light, based on the authority of Jesus Christ, but upon good spiritual training, spiritual care ministry. Um, one of my issues is prejudging. I prejudge people. I remember the story of uh, Tony. This, these are real people. Tony and Chris Romo. Tony and Chris Romo. 
people came to uh, the church where I was the preacher, and it was after the morning worship, and I, I was in my, by the way, the, the picture of, I love the picture of me in, in Harbor, you know, I want to say that's not me, and I put it in there purposely because it was, uh, it was of me as a, a churchman, I was such a good churchman. But I didn't know how to answer the hard questions. I love churches, and I love staff ministers in churches. But I had a lot to learn, and I didn't know at that time. I was pretty naive. Uh, my Johari window was not uh, well-developed, you might say. I was in denial about a lot of things, and so thankful for the grace of God. So thankful. Oh, um, how many hospital hallways have I walked and I said Jesus I know you're right with me and that's why I can knock on this door so I figured in the five years that I've been both in residency, internship and now as a full time chaplain um, over 6,000 hospital visits figuring about 1,200 a year if I'm doing well, five or so a day, you know it, it really adds up pretty quickly, but that's the authority I bring, I really bring to you the stories of my patients is who you've heard speak tonight, this afternoon. I wish you could have met them. Some who aren't with us. And they were amazing people. Oh, the woman in the oncology ward, breast cancer, she sat there with her husband. She said, I know I'm going to die, but God is good. You usually know you're in the right line of work when they think you're the one blessing them, and it's not true at all. They're blessing you. But uh, for me, it it gets sum- summarized in the uh, in the uh, in the eight-month-old boy. I guess he he was the one that uh, captured my heart about being prejudging, judgmental. It was in Boise, actually it was in Meridian at their, their extension hospital, right along I-84. And the mom and eight-month-old boy, he was non-responsive, uh, suddenly was not uh, breathing, or could they find a heartbeat, and uh, brought him in. Mom was... Uh, uh, it was summertime. She was in a very immodest, what I would call an immodest. You better get that done. All kind, you know, you got to be flexible when you're a chaplain. Uh, she came in. She was very tatted up, like tattoos, uh, you know. And that's the way I saw her, looking back. I saw her as, wow, frankly, who's this irresponsible-looking mother? And the baby was brought in. Dad came in the, the family car because she had come in by ambulance. And the two kids came with him, two other kids came with him. Uh, they worked on the baby for, oh, close to an hour. I mean, when a baby comes into the emergency department, it's like, whoa, this is on high, highest alert. Uh, because it's moral injury, it is, uh, it's not fair and everybody realizes it. Because now life really matters. I mean, it always matters, but 
the consciousness of that is so, it's, it's, uh, you can taste it. They worked on the baby. I, I brought mom in. We were right there at the, the treatment table bed. They were doing the compressions on, on, on the little guy, eight months old. Did I tell you that my first granddaughter had just been recently born? So my projection, what I'm thinking, feeling. Baby died. Doctor said that's, we're calling it. The medical team, I mean, 12, 15 people, because they're having to take turns doing compressions. It was exhausting. They all filed out. There was a female nurse. There was mom, baby, and myself. And this irresponsible-looking mother sat upon the bed held baby and spoke to baby. And I remember her words. She says, you're going to be with Jesus. And you're going to be warm. She was concerned about warm. You're going to be warm. And we're going to miss you. But you're not going to be alone. And we'll think about you. And we'll look forward to seeing you one day. You know what I said? Nothing. Because she was teaching me. She was giving that baby all the spiritual care. Yes, we were there for her afterwards and affirmed her. And Oh, your love is so powerful. Thank you for sharing your love in this place. That's the wonderful, mysterious, awful, filled with awe, and yet awful, world of ministry, wherever it is. If it's in chaplaincy, healthcare, hospital, nursing homes, children, projects with traumatic <coughs> cases. Uh, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship be with you all. Amen. What about the riddle? Oh, good. Life is a riddle, right? The answer is what? Which way to your town? Which way to your town? Because if you're from True Town, you always tell the truth. You'll point to True Town. If you're from False Town, you always tell a lie. You'll point to True Town. So, go. Be true to your calling.